on this episode of the Resound Project podcast. This sort of field of theological thinking that became live theology for, was me at first just getting in my car with a full tank of gas and a micro cassette recorder and driving south and just beginning to ask people on all sides of the civil rights struggle, who is the God? Tell me about your faith and why, why did your faith call you to lay everything on the line? Or why did your faith call you to become the high priest of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi? There, there seemed to be this unsolved, unaddressed kind of theological conflict in the story with everyone saying, God is on my side, we are the exemplification of Christianity, and yet coming to the social order with such dramatically different expectations. And that was a, a moment that changed my life and, and also, I think, brought answers. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors, Together, we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. Charles Marsh began his academic career studying the philosophical theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Over time, he found his interest gravitating toward the complex ways in which theological commitments and convictions came into dramatic conflict on both sides of the civil rights movement in the American South. This led Professor Marsh to become much more focused on the intersection between theology and real life, or what he calls lived theology. He spent the last several decades exploring how theology is expressed in our day-to-day lives. In the second part of my conversation with Charles Marsh, we discuss how the civil rights movement was not, first and foremost, a political movement with a religious dimension, but rather it was a thoroughly Christian movement with a political dimension, though many have attempted to secularize the story. Professor Marsh has documented how the civil rights movement, especially from 1955 to 1964, was a church-centered Christian movement in pursuit of beloved community. In this episode, we discuss why the movement began to fragment after 1964 and how John Perkins became one of the leading voices of biblical reconciliation in the American church today. The episode concludes with a personal conversation with John Perkins on race and love and the critically important role that the Christian church must play in our divisive times. Charles Marsh is the author of several award-winning books, including God's Long Summer, Stories of Faith and Civil Rights, and The Beloved Community, How Faith Shapes Social Justice from the Civil Rights Movement to Today. Professor Marsh is the Commonwealth Professor of Religious Studies and the Director of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia. Here's the conversation. I wonder if we could turn from the the topic of politics to one of race. I've read that you, after writing your biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, found yourself gravitating uh, in terms of your own personal interest towards the civil rights movement. I I wonder if you might describe that process in your own life. How how did that take on such greater importance for you? 
thank you for the opportunity to talk for a minute about that sort of vocational shift in my own journey. Yeah, I mentioned earlier, Jason, that you know I was raised in the Deep South and came of age amid the final years of the civil rights movement. But in 1970, after I joined the first integrated class and in, a, in an experiment, if you will, that was hugely successful and it was wonderful and beautiful to be mm. finally seated in schools and in the playgrounds and teams and bands and choirs with my black brothers and sisters. I, I didn't think too much about the unresolved theological questions of that period went on did a PhD in philosophical theology and was teaching in a liberal arts college in, in Baltimore in the early 90s, doing those things you do to get tenure, writing technical papers and philosophical papers. When I began to notice that my, my dreams and my notebooks and my little doodlings and sketches were calling me back to the South. There were images mm-hmm. from my childhood questions a question like this, for example, why was it the case that white evangelical Christians who nourished me, nurtured me in the faith and taught me practices of Christian devotion for which I'm forever grateful, nonetheless remained indifferent towards, contemptuous towards the suffering of our black brothers and sisters under the mm-hmm. iron hard rule of Jim Crow? That was a question that had been explored by historians and social philosophers and economists and any number of levels. But it seemed to me, first and foremost, a theological question that I needed to Hmm. address. And a little memoir by a Ural neighbor from the Upper West Side, the the theologian James Cohn Hmm. at Union Theological Seminary, beautiful little book called My Soul Looks Back. Professor Cohn said, you know, as a, as a child of the Jim Crow South from Arkansas, that in seminary and in graduate school, it began to dawn on him that such questions as that were as profound as the major doctrinal questions stemming from the Protestant Reformation. That is, the, these are questions as vexing and impactful as those. And I agreed with that. And so this this sort of field of theological thinking that became live theology for, was me at first just getting in my car with a full tank of gas and a micro cassette recorder and driving south and just beginning to ask people on all sides of the civil rights struggle, who is the God? Tell me about your faith and why, why did your faith call you to lay everything on the line? Or why did your faith call you to become the high priest of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi? There there seemed to be this unsolved, unaddressed kind of theological conflict in the story with everyone saying, God is on my side. We are the exemplification of Christianity and yet coming to the social order with such dramatically different expectations. And that was a, a moment that changed my life and and also, I think, brought answers. Hmm. 
And then it, it set the trajectory for the last two decades of your career. May I give you one of the answers? Absolutely. One was that the discovery that in many respects, the Christ we worshiped in the white segregated evangelical churches was a Gnostic Christ. Hmm. It was a Christ who did not become fully human, fully divine in Jesus Christ. It was a, a Christ who did not expect or want us to get our hands dirty in the messy work of redeeming the social order, of working for mercy and justice. The Gnostic Christ insofar as we believe that we could be fully pleasing to God if our soul was saved, our individual soul was saved from eternal damnation, and we were nurturing our individual spiritual lives. We lack that sense of a deep community with others, others different than our own, and a sense of that deep global ecumenical body of Christ. And that ties then back to Bonhoeffer as well, because I think in both Bonhoeffer and then the Christian leaders within the civil rights movement would say that a call to follow Jesus as Lord means a call to pursue his kingdom purposes in the world in light of the new citizenship that you have received. And that will require getting your hands dirty. And I found in the story of the black Christian witness in the civil rights movement from 1955 to 1964 is the period during which I sort of look at the exemplification of this faithful Christian witness of the distressed and the excluded. I, I found in that story a theology of such power and faithfulness as to offer all of us in this country a kind of correction, our muddled thinking of political nationalism or identifying ourselves according to party and tribe. Here was, here was a reformation moment. Hmm. Here was a people that really trusted in the promise of God to bless. <laughs> and the sacrifices and the discipline and the attention of this black Christian witness, I still think is not fully appreciated by Christians in this country and around the world. Hmm. You said that at least until 1964, the civil rights movement was centered on a vision of beloved community. I wonder if you could unpack what that vision entailed and what sustained it. And then what caused that vision of beloved community to fragment after 1964? Well, part of my discovery in the, these years of, of field research, interviews, asking questions, piddling around archives, being nosy, being the, the, the reporter who won't take no for an answer, I had, wasn't particularly surprising, but it was vexing hmm. that the story of the civil rights movement had been largely secularized in the public square by by scholars and 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 the like and yet if you look closely at the story if you really got deep in the weeds and looked at minutes of meetings if you looked at publications of speeches 
you'll see that like the very, you know, not only was the Montgomery bus boycott a church movement, mm-hmm. it was not called the civil rights movement, it was called a church movement or a Christian movement or the spiritual movement in Montgomery. And mm-hmm. it was based in the pews. It was, it was clustered, it clustered around the, the, the proclamation of the word and worship and, you know, a very generous kind of orthodoxy. But even in an organization like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is often described as the kind of the radical secularizing wave of the movement, Ella Baker in those early meetings, they, these these documents, these mm, testimonials were grounding their work within the teachings of Jesus. Hmm. And so it is my, I mean, this may come across as somewhat simplistic and maybe controversial, but nonetheless, it's it's my conclusion after two decades of study that as long as the civil rights movement in the South was grounded in the disciplines and the convictions and the energies of the Black Freedom Church, it, it remained focused on the here on the things that needed to be done piecemeal social reform integration reconciliation education it became focused on real practical solutions to the systemic problems of segregation mm-hmm. when it abandoned those convictions as it would after 1965, after many of the members of the movement ranks left to join other kinds of organizing initiatives around free speech or anti-war activism or pursuit of an alternative consciousness or pursuit of beloved community in other kinds of ideological context. And as notes of racial nationalism entered the movement ranks, demonstrably, the, 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 the leadership abandoned the church. Hmm. And you can say, well, that's, I understand that. If I had been a, a black man living in Mississippi in 1965, and I'd gone to jail 40 times, I would very well be saying, I'm not going to jail again. I, I, I like what Stokely's saying, freedom now, freedom by any means necessary. I get that. But what I want to say is the results of that was that the movement that had brought <clears throat> these dramatic ends to legal and social segregation, the movement that made America a better nation, lost its focus. And mm-hmm. the everyday disciplines of living and organizing for justice among the poor withered on the vine. Then directly answer your question, but I wanted to just kind of build that framework up a little to show why, out a little, to show why I think that date is important. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. So in light of that, the fragmentation of the movement post-1964, 1965, why did a figure like John Perkins become so important? I know that you cultivated a very meaningful friendship and working partnership with him. I had the opportunity, a wonderful opportunity to speak with him not long ago. 
Could you describe who John Perkins is, why he's so important to the church, especially for the moment of time in which we now find ourselves? John Perkins is, as many of your listeners know, a, a kind of modern day hero, uh, a prof- prophetic voice of, of, race, of reconciliation and, and justice in, in the church. His story appeals to me for many reasons as a scholar, but my first introduction to John was a personal one. It was on a trip back to Mississippi to see my grandmother. I guess it was in the summer of 1980. I just finished college in New England Hmm. and had read his memoir, uh, Let Justice Roll Down, which is a very powerful book about his decision to move back from California to his home state of Mississippi, just as Mississippi was becoming the, the, the place of Mississippi burning, to live out this gospel witness. Mm-hmm. But I was able to reach him because he was working and directing a Christian community development ministry in Jackson, Mississippi called Voice of Calvary. And to meet one morning at a Shawnee's big boy restaurant for for breakfast. (laughs) And really for the first time, Jason, as a white Southerner who had left the South to go to college, who was filled with a lot of guilt about my about my family um, history and also who who really wanted to, to to know how i can use my gifts for the kingdom and and for racial reconciliation in this disarming way he did nothing but love me and show grace and mercy towards me he asked about my family with affection and listened as I stumbled to describe racist relatives. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't judgmental. He prayed with me. He, he showed me such undeserved love and forgiveness that I just knew whatever whatever had brought him into this grace was where I wanted to be. It was, mm-hmm. and, and so on a personal level, John showed me that kind of truth and power of Galatians 3, 26 through 29, that in, in, in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, that the, these walls of divisions have been overcome and now live into that new citizenship. Mm-hmm. He, he exemplifies that citizenship with infectious joy and with prophetic courage, with an unbe- un- unbelievable ability to sit down with people on the on the right and on the left and to develop relationships of trust there's an authenticity of course that's born of his story the authenticity is also intricately related 
to the kind of welcome, the sense of welcome, the kind of vocation of welcoming the other, welcoming the enemy, welcoming the stranger, welcoming the racist. I teach in a big public university and I'm aware that as a white person of privilege, there are many spaces in which I feel reluctant to speak because I may say something that is unintentionally offensive. There's this sense of freedom and acceptance and tenderness in true Christianity that Perkins exemplifies hmm. that we so desperately need mm-hmm. in the churches. Well, as I mentioned, I had the opportunity to speak with him not long ago. And when we made the arrangements, it was few a few days before we were scheduled to call, but I got a random phone call on my cell phone and it was Dr. John Perkins. He just wanted to call and introduce himself before we had our actual conversation. And I can resonate with the way in which you described his his welcome and his warm and so he just seemed to go out of his way. Thing. So I'd just like to say one more thing. When When I first met John, I wanted to tell him because I'd never told a black person about some of the unsavory characters in my family and mm-hmm. more more unsavory behavior, more racist behavior, people I loved and care for deeply, people who were also racist. And I began to tell him about my grandmother with whom I was staying in Jackson. And I wanted him to explain to me why she could be so devout in the practice of of her faith, read her Bible, listened to sermons on tape, faithful member of a Presbyterian church in Jackson, and profess views on race that are deeply offensive to the gospel and that are deeply embarrassing to me. As I was explaining this to John, he listened and he nodded and I wanted him to say something, to talk, to explain, to, 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 to kind of go in for the kill, you know, and to say like some, something judgmental or whatever. You know, I don't know what, but I wasn't expecting his response because when he, the way he responded after I sort of gushed out this confession was to ask me, Charles, does your, does your grandmother like blueberries? <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, yeah, she likes blueberries. And he said, I love blueberries. You know, I love to put blueberries on my ice cream, on, on pies and cobbler. And sometimes I like blueberries and just put it, put a little milk and, and some brown sugar, maybe a little syrup or molasses. I love blueberries. He said, um, come back to, to my house after, after, after breakfast. And I want to give you a little carton of blueberries. I said, okay. And he said, I want you to take that to your grandmom and just tell her John sent those <laughs> for her meal. And that was the response. Yeah. It was get, getting hit over the head with the Eucharistic feast of God. Mm-hmm. And this, this sort of sense that the most tender and loving act 
imaginable was precisely the one that he wanted to convey mm -hmm. to my racist yeah. grandmother. Hmm. That's a great story. Yeah, he, uh, he has received a gospel and embodied a gospel that has come from the far country. There is no doubt about that. So I wonder, uh, as we consider the, the state of our world today, which is being ripped apart by so much political polarization and racial division, what can we learn from Dr. Perkins' life and legacy? What practical steps can Christians take today to lead the way in a constructive pursuit of racial justice and biblical reconciliation? Yeah, I, 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 wanna, I wanna go back to that admonition to remember the peculiar people. Um, yeah, explain what you mean by that. I, you know, of course, I'm thinking of the passage in Hebrews. I'm thinking of the biblical passages of being a peculiar people, uh, uh, a nation called out for a distinct purpose. But I, I'm also thinking of the idea of the peculiar people as the stories of men and women who, whose patriotism was first and foremost for the kingdom of God. Some who we've mentioned today, Dr. Perkins, of course, Bonhoeffer, mm -hmm. others, Fannie Lou Hamer is someone I would, whose story I would want to tell. Many of these peculiar people have stories that have been forgotten. I think there's only so far we can go as ministers and teachers in addressing the situation you described in doctrinal clarifications and theological debate. I think those are important, mm -hmm. but I, I think that something Bonhoeffer said late in his life, in fact, as he was living his last days in a, in a Gestapo prison about the power of exemplification, he said, we, we need to proclaim Christ and as the forgiveness and the repentance of the nations. And doctrine has an important role. It's a framing and, and kind of disciplining structure. But what we need today is to see, see what it looks like hmm. to be a Christian to be a man or woman whose patriotism is first and foremost for the kingdom. And he said, Protestants have this, Lutherans in particular, have this sort of kind of hesitation with the idea of exemplification because it sounds like we're getting into the stories of saints and hagiography and works right. righteousness. But the gospels, the gospel narratives are all about these stories of men and women who say yes to the call. And, and so I think that it's a way um, of remembering the peculiar people. I like in my classroom and in one course I teach called The Kingdom of God in America to introduce my students to a kind of forgotten tradition within American Christianity of folks who believe the gospel and put that gospel to work in 
the redemption of the social order. John mm -hmm. Perkins is in that class, is, is one of the figures in that class, but so is Clarence Jordan and Florence Jordan, the founders of Quantity of Farm in America's Georgia. So is Walter Rauschenbusch and some of the members of the social gospel movement. There, there were some theological sort of quandaries in their work, but they were pious men and women. Fannie Lou Hamer, June Jordan, John, John Lewis, men and women whose stories have been forgotten. And to, to, to do that by way of expanding our kind of imagination as Christians of, of who we look to, to see patterns of, of righteousness. I, I feel like there's such a cult of celebrity within the Christian world today we, we simply don't get out of that kind of insularity to look and to see the stories. In New York, they're everywhere. You know, there are people who are right now showing us the, the beauty and the joy and the power of Christianity as truth and as a redemptive force in the world. Let's lift their stories up. Right. Let's tell their stories. No, you're absolutely right. There's so many perfect examples out there of, of what faith should look like in practice, and yet we're distracted uh, or we're co-opted, and we need to learn how to cultivate the mind of Christ and follow the, the patterns that have been set out before us. Yeah, they, those are stories that don't trend. Right. Yeah. Well, I wonder if we could close with one final question, which is, amidst all the chaos and the confusion of our times, what reason do we have for hope in the midst of it all? Well, we, we, we live as people of, of gratitude. We live with hope that is given to us in Christ. We live our lives against a horizon of hope. And I think just building on, on the question that we just addressed, Jason, if we go into places of exclusion and distress in this country, and we look at those people who are building community and restoring lives, I mean, these are not people who have read Nietzsche and found in postmodernism some strategy for engaging the poor and building beloved community. These are people are these are not people who are who are nihilist or who have lost belief or who look into a kind of eternal eternally dark future. These are people who seen a light in the darkness, who come to the work of mercy and justice out of a sense of being called into this new world of God. And I think, you know, what we need to remember is that the call of Jesus is not only a call to life with God, but it's a call to a kind of genuine humanness. A Karl Barth, who I mentioned earlier, has this wonderful line in one of his early essays, and he says, we as Christians 
must be more romantic than the romanticist, more humanist than the humanist, but we must be more precise. I lived much of my early life as a Christian thinking that my commitment to Christ called me away from the world. And I think what has changed my life and has brought me into a deeper understanding of the gospel and a life that is so much kind of spirited with adventure and joy, heartbreak and difficulty, but nonetheless lived within the horizon of hope is the sense that discipleship is salvation, discipleship is life, discipleship is joy, and discipleship is humanness realized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we follow the model of the incarnation. Jesus exemplified, uh, fully realized humanity to us and invites us into the mission of living out our new identity fully as human beings and seeking the wholeness and flourishing of our fellow humans. And if I could add, doing so in a way that is not self-righteous, right. that does not engage the social order as if we have all the answers at our disposal, but in a way that is chastened by our, our mistakes and the brutalities of history, a way that is humble, a way that is open, a way that listens to others, a way that loves others, not only through proclaiming the gospel, but learning to live alongside others to help build just social structures in the company of strangers and friends alike. Mm -hmm. I think that's all part of what it means to bear witness to Christ in this time. As Professor Marsh describes him, John Perkins is one of the modern-day heroes within the church who offers a prophetic and compassionate voice on reconciliation and justice from a solidly Christian and thoroughly biblical perspective. As I mentioned earlier, I had the joy and privilege of speaking with John Perkins, who is now 92 years old. And as you will hear for yourself, he is filled with just as much passion, wisdom, and humility as ever. Dr. Perkins refers to his book, One Blood, as his manifesto. This book represents the culmination of his life's work as he offers his parting words to the American church on how to think about race and how to live a life of love, patterned after the life and teaching of Jesus. On a personal note, I have to say that One Blood served as my go-to resource during the summer and fall of 2020 as I sought to help our church in New York City navigate renewed and sometimes heated conversations about race and justice from a biblical point of view. If you're looking for a thought-provoking book that avoids unhelpful extremes and offers practical advice for how to think through issues of racial division from a distinctively Christian perspective, there's no better place to go than One Blood. And now that I've whetted your appetite, I'll let Dr. Perkins have the last word on this episode. We'd like to drill down on how Christians should faithfully pursue justice and reconciliation, specifically from a biblical point of view, as opposed to adopting our, our theories or approaches from the secular world around us. Because I think that the church has something to say in the midst of the division and alienation we're currently experiencing. So it is a joy to speak with you and a great honor. And as a way of getting going, I, I wonder if you might offer just uh, your 
overarching assessment of what you believe are some of the most pressing issues facing the church today? I think understanding the depth of what is the biblical common good. The common good is life itself. The problem is human dignity and language. Language has always been the dominant part. When language get confused, you have a problem. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither was they thankful, but they became vain in their imagination. And God confused their language. So we got to bring back language of dignity. Grace is the solution to human dilemma. The story of grace and the story of the gospel is pretty clear. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy to, to all people. Joy is the summa of happiness and contentment. God says, uh, I've shown thee, O people, one people, one race. I've shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of us but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly before God. He says, it's doing that. Doing that is believing in the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. That's doing that. He showed us how to do that. He done that and he makes us sons of God. Beloved, now, right now we're the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we should be, what we should be like him when he appear. So we got some things very crossed up and we don't like one another. And we have deified hate. Hate was not to be uh, a virtue. So the church has got to explain this. They got to be discipling people on how then shall we live. That's Francis Schaeffer's uh, manifesto. Mind is one blood, one human race, and that we have now we can practice justice. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness. That's God living in us as a mighty stream. That's God living his life out through us as human beings. You're talking about the church. Nobody can do that but the church. The church was called to do that. Loving the neighbor. That's the greatest solution to the racial thought because if love is a solution, you got to love your neighbor, you love yourself. He that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not, knows not God, for God is love. I could go on with that. I look through my life. I look back. I see so many mistakes. I see them now. I like the idea of lament. I, I try to singing every day, forgive me, Lord, try me one more time. I be yours, dear Lord, if you be mine. When I stumble, when I sin, take me back, Lord, and try me again. I'm living with joy, joy and pain. But that to me is trying to disciple me. I'm too self-focused. I need to be God's spoke. I need to see this humanity and love is humanity. Well, it's it's obvious that your love for Jesus, his love for you, 
flows through your life to others. And it would have been so easy for the evil and the hate that you experienced, especially as a younger person, to take you over. But Jesus changed your life. So how would you describe that? How did Jesus change your life? Jesus changed my life when I was about 25, six years old. I grew up outside of the Christian church. I heard folklore. You know, I heard folklore about the church and all of these things, but I did not hear an organized presentation of the gospel that I could understand. Keep in mind now, I didn't go to Sunday school. I don't know if I went to Sunday school more than three or four times in my growing up. I'm talking about in my life growing up. So when my, I was about 25, six, somewhere along there, my son Spencer, about three or four years old, going to a good news club in, in a, at a, it was sponsored by the community, but also sponsored by a local church. I asked him, what was he learning going to Sunday school? And he sang me a little song. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, brown, yellow, black, and white. They all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That's the first time I knew I was loved by God. Hmm. First time I knew I was loved by God. Now, that was in the light of, of uh, in Alabama, in, in Alabama, a black woman can't ride the bus in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, little children had to have National Guard to get them on the bus. It was in the light of all of that that I was converted. I was being converted. I'd been in the military. I served. So that began my discipleship. And I ended up going to these good news clubs. And my theological framework was by child evangelism and by a white missionary lady who had served her time in Brazil during those days and wasn't as racist as in in America. I went to her bookstore to buy me a Bible. This, I said, I want to be a Bible teacher. And she told me, you know, the Bible is about one person. And I was saying, it's about 66 people. No, she said, it's about one. And that story is the incarnation of God's son as God in the world. And it's a story about him. She got me on a good start. <laughs> She put me on a good start, but but freely he gives. He sent us out to do it. He sent us out to be like him. Boy, it's difficult for me to be like him. Difficult for me to be like him. I use up most of it. He has some left over. So I, I think God is speaking to me about my ways. He's speaking to me about my consumption. He's speaking to me about the destruction of life and not caring about life, not seeing life. I have come that they might have life, one life, one life, one seed. I want my will most of the time to be done. I want my kingdom to come on earth, not like it in heaven where we are one. So I'm a third grade dropout, and I have all these honorary degrees. I feel pretty good. Sometimes my head get too big. Sometimes my head get too big. 
And then I, I, every morning I learned something. <laughs> every morning I learned something I didn't know about the Word of God the day before. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.